Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 78, Taboo Tradeoffs Prelude, Cheating It was Saturday on the 4th of April in the year 1992. Mr. and Mrs. Davis looked rather nervous as they sat in a certain special section of the Hogwarts Quidditch stands, though today the cushioned benches did not look upon flying broomsticks, but rather viewed a gigantic square of something like parchment. A great white blankness soon to flicker with windows into grass and soldiers. For now, it showed only the reflected dull gray of the surrounding overcast skies, looking rather stormy, though the weather wizards had promised that the rain wouldn't break before nightfall. Ordinarily, it was the ancient tradition of Hogwarts that mere parents were to stay out, for much the same reason that impatient children are told to get out of the kitchen and not meddle in the cook's affairs. The only reason for a parent-teacher conference was if a teacher felt that a parent wasn't shaping up properly. It took an exceptional circumstance to make the Hogwarts administration feel that it had to justify itself to you. On any given occasion, generally speaking, the Hogwarts administration was backed up by 800 years of distinguished history, and you were not. Thus it had been with some trepidation that Mr. and Mrs. Davis had insisted on an audience with Deputy Headmistress McGonagall. It was hard to muster a proper sense of indignation when you were confronting the same dignified witch who, twelve years and four months earlier, had given both of you two weeks' detention after catching you in the act of conceiving Tracy. On the other hand, Mr. and Mrs. Davis's courage had been helped by angrily waving about a copy of the Quibbler, whose headline showed, in bright bold text for all the world to see, Packs with Potter, Bones Davis Granger in love rectangle of fear. And so, Mr. and Mrs. Davis had argued their way into the faculty box of the Hogwarts Quidditch stands, where they were now ensconced with an excellent view of Professor Quirrell's enchanted screens, so that the two of them could see for themselves just what the fiddly snocks has been going on in this school, if you'll pardon the expression, Deputy Headmistress McGonagall. Seated to the left of Mr. Davis was another concerned parent, a white-haired man in elegant black robes of unmatchable quality, one Lucius Malfoy, political leader of the strongest faction of the Wizengamot. To the left of Lord Malfoy, a sneeringly aristocratic man with a scarred face who had been introduced to them as Lord Jugson. Then an elderly but sharp-eyed fellow named Charles Knott, rumored to be nearly as wealthy as Lord Malfoy, seated on Lord Jugson's left. On the right of Mrs. Davis, one would find the comely lady and yet handsomer lord of the noble and most ancient house of Greengrass. Young they were as wizards counted age, garbed in grey silken robes set with tiny dark emeralds embroidered into the shape of grass blades. The Lady Greengrass was considered a key swing vote on the Wizengamot, her own mother having retired from the body with surprising speed. Her charming husband, though his family was not noble or wealthy of itself, had taken a seat on the Hogwarts Board of Governors. To their right, a square-jawed and incredibly tough-looking old witch, who had shaken hands with Mr. and Mrs. Davis without the slightest hint of condescension. This was Amelia Bones, Director of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. 
To Amelia's right was a seniorish woman who had set the fashion sense of magical Britain on its ear by integrating a live vulture into her hat, one Augusta Longbottom. Though she was not addressed as lady, Madame Longbottom would exercise the full rights of the Longbottom family for so long as their last scion had yet to attain his majority, and she was considered a prominent figure in a minority faction of the Wizengamot. At the side of Madame Longbottom was seated none other than Chief Warlock, Supreme Mugwump, Headmaster Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore. Legendary defeater of Grindelwald, protector of Britain, rediscoverer of the fabled twelve uses of dragon's blood, the most powerful wizard in the world, etc. And finally, on the far right, one would find the enigmatic defense professor of Hogwarts, Quirinus Quirrell, who was leaning back on the cushioned benches as though resting, seeming entirely and naturally at ease in the rarefied company of a voting quorum of the Hogwarts Board of Governors, which had dropped by on this fine Saturday to learn just what the fiddly snocks had been going on at Hogwarts in general, and with Draco Malfoy, Theodore Knott, Daphne Greengrass, Susan Bones, and Neville Longbottom in particular. The name of Harry Potter had also been much discussed. Oh, and one mustn't forget Tracy Davis, of course. Director Bones's eyebrows had climbed in some interest upon hearing the young couple introduced as her parents. Lord Jugson had given them a brief, incredulous stare before dismissing them with a snort. Lord Malfoy had greeted them politely, his smile containing a hint of grim amusement mixed with pity. Mr. and Mrs. Davis, whose last vote on anything of significance had been touching their wands to the name of Minister Fudge, who had all of 300 galleons stored in their Gringotts vault, and who respectively worked at selling cauldrons in a potions shop and enchanting omnioculars, were pressed up tightly against each other, sitting rigidly erect upon their cushioned benches, and desperately wishing they'd worn nicer robes. The sky above was a solid mass of cloud dispersed into darker and lighter grays, grim with the promise of future storms. Though no lightning flickered as yet, nor distant rumbles of thunder echoed, and only a few threatening droplets had fallen. To their designated starting place in a certain forest, the Sunshine Regiment marched, though it was really more like a slow walk. You wouldn't want to tire yourself out before the battle even started, and the breezes of April were annoyingly humid, though cool. Ahead of them, a yellow flame wandered slowly through the air, guiding them according to their pace. Susan Bones kept throwing worried glances toward the Sunshine General as they marched through the grayly illuminated forest. Professor Snape's going after Hermione seemed to have really shaken her. Hermione had even missed her Sunshine Regiment official planning meeting, which seemed understandable enough. But when Susan had offered her sympathy afterward, Hermione had stammered that she'd lost track of time, which wasn't at all a usual thing for her to say, and the girl looked exhausted and frightened, like she'd just spent three days locked in a bathroom stall with a Dementor. Even now, when all the Sunshine General's focus should have been on the coming battle, the Ravenclaw girl's gaze was constantly darting in all directions, as though she expected dark wizards to jump out of the bushes and sacrifice her. The ban on muggle artifacts cuts down our options a lot, Anthony Goldstein was saying in the dour tones the boy used to denote deliberate pessimism. I had the idea of trying to transfigure nets to throw on people, but... No good, said Ernie McMillan. The Hufflepuff boy shook his head, looking even more serious than Anthony. I mean, 
It's just like throwing a hex. They dodge. Anthony nodded. That's what I figured, too. Do you have any ideas, Seamus? The former chaotic lieutenant still looked a bit nervous and out of place, marching along with his new comrades in the Sunshine Regiment. Sorry, said the newly minted Captain Finnegan. I'm more the strategic master type. I'm the strategic master type, said Ron Weasley, sounding put off. There are three armies, the Sunshine General said acerbically. Which means we fight two armies at once, which means we need more than one strategist, which means shut up, Ron. Ron gave their general a surprised and worried look. Hey, you shouldn't let Snape get to you so much. What do you think we ought to do, General? Susan said very loudly and quickly. I mean, we don't really have a plan at this point. Their official planning session had failed amazingly with Hermione gone and both Ron and Anthony thinking they were in charge. Do we really need a plan? The Sunshine General said, sounding a little distracted. We've got you and me and Lavender and Parvati and Hannah and Daphne and Ron and Ernie and Anthony and Captain Finnegan. That began Anthony. Sounds like a pretty good strategy, Ron said with an approving nod. We've got as many strong soldiers now as both other armies put together. Chaos has only got Potter and Longbottom and not left. Well, and Zabini too, I suppose. And Tracy. Several people swallowed nervously. Oh, stop it. She's just a battle-hardened member of Spew. That's all General Sunshine means. Still, Ernie said, turning to look seriously at Susan. I think you'd better go with whatever group fights chaos, Captain Bones. I know you can't use your double magic powers except when innocents are in danger. But I mean, just in case Miss Davis does, you know, go out of control and try and eat someone's soul. I can handle her. Susan told him, keeping her voice reassuring. Admittedly, Susan hadn't been replaced by a metamorph magus at the moment, but then Tracy probably wasn't Polyjuice Dumbledore or whoever. Captain Finnegan intoned in a deep, sort of rumbling voice, I find your lack of skepticism disturbing. He raised his hand with his thumb and forefinger almost touching, pointing at Ernie. For some reason, Anthony Goldstein seemed to be having a sudden choking fit. What's that supposed to mean? It's just something General Potter says sometimes. Funny, when you first join the Chaos Legion, it all seems crazy. And then after a couple of months, you realize that actually everyone who isn't in the Chaos Legion is crazy. I said, it sounds like a good strategy. We don't transfigure anything. We don't tire ourselves out. We handle whatever they throw at us, and then we just overrun them. Okay, let's do that. But, said Anthony, shooting a glare at Ron... But General, Harry Potter's got 16 people left in his army. Dragon and us each have 28. Harry knows that. He knows he's got to come up with something incredible. Like what? Demanded Hermione, sounding stressed. If we don't know what he's planning, we might as well save our magic for doing masked finites, like we should have done last time. Susan touched Hermione gently on the shoulder. General Granger... I think you should take a break for a bit before the battle. She'd been expecting Hermione to argue, but Hermione just nodded and then walked a little faster, pulling away from the Sunshine Regiment official officer group, her eyes still watching the forest and sometimes the sky. Susan followed her. It wouldn't do having it look like the Sunshine General was being ejected from her own official officer group. Hermione, Susan said softly after they'd walked a bit away. 
You've got to focus. Professor Quirrell's in charge here, not Snape, and he won't let anything bad happen to you or anyone. You're not helping. You're not helping at all, Captain Bones. The two of them walked faster, circling around some of the other soldiers, inspecting the marching perimeter and glancing at the surrounding trees. Susan? Hermione said in a small voice after they'd gotten further away from all the others. Do you think Daphne's right about Draco Malfoy plotting something? Yes. Susan said at once, not even thinking about it. You can tell because his name's got the letters M-A-L-F-O-N-Y in it. Hermione looked around as if to make sure that nobody was watching, although of course that was a wonderful way to get other people to pay attention to you. Could Malfoy have been behind what Snape did? Snape could be behind Malfoy. Susan said thoughtfully, remembering dinner table conversations she'd heard at Auntie's. Or Lucius Malfoy could be behind both of them. A slight chill went down Susan's spine as this last thought occurred to her. Why, did you find some sort of clue about that? Hermione shook her head. No. The Ravenclaw girl said, in a voice that sounded almost like she was about to cry. I was just thinking about it myself. That's all. In their designated place, in a forest near Hogwarts, the Dragon General and the warriors of Dragon Army waited where the red flame had led them, beneath gray skies. At Draco's right side stood Padma Patil, his second in command, who had once led all of Dragon Army after Draco had been stunned. At Draco's back was Vincent, the son of Crab, a family which had served the Malfoys into the distance of forgotten memory. The muscular boy was watchful, as he was always watchful, whether battle had been declared or no. Further back, Gregory of the Goyles stood waiting beside one of the two broomsticks Dragon Army had been given. If the Goyles had not served the Malfoys so long as the Crabs, yet they had served no less well. And at Draco's left side, now, stood one Dean Thomas of Gryffindor, a mudblood or possible half-blood who knew nothing of his father. Sending Dean Thomas to Dragon Army had been a quite deliberate move on Harry's part, Draco was certain. Three other former Chaotix had also been transferred to Dragon Army, and all were watching Draco hawk-like to see if he offered the former lieutenant the slightest insult. Some might have called it sabotage, but Draco knew better. Harry had also sent Lieutenant Finnegan to the Sunshine Regiment, even though Professor Quirrell's mandate had only required that Harry give up one lieutenant. That, too, had been a deliberate move, making crystal clear to everyone that Harry wasn't dumping his least favorite soldiers. In one sense, it might have been easier for Draco to win the true loyalties of his new soldiers if they thought Harry hadn't wanted them. In another sense, well, it wasn't easy to put into words. Harry had given him good soldiers with their pride intact, but it was more than that. Harry had showed kindliness toward his soldiers, but it was more than that. It wasn't just Harry playing fair, it was something that that you couldn't help but contrast with the way the game was played in Slytherin House. So Draco hadn't offered the slightest insult to Mr. Thomas, but brought him straight to his side, subordinate to himself and Padma, but no one else. It was a test, Draco had told Mr. Thomas and everyone, not a promotion. Mr. Thomas would have to show himself worthy of rank within Dragon Army, but he would be given a chance, and the chance would be fair. Mr. Thomas had looked surprised at the ceremony of it. The Chaos Legion, from what Draco had heard, didn't stand on formality. 
but the Gryffindor boy had stood a little straighter and nodded. And then, after Mr. Thomas had done well enough in one of Dragon Army's training sessions, he'd been brought into the strategy session in Dragon Army's huge military office. And a few minutes into the session, Padma had happened to ask, as though it was a perfectly normal question, whether Mr. Thomas had any ideas about how to defeat the Chaos Legion. The Gryffindor boy had said cheerfully that Harry had predicted that General Malfoy would get one of his soldiers to ask him that, and that Harry had given him the message that General Malfoy should ask himself where his relative advantage lay, what Draco Malfoy could do, or what Dragon Army could do, that the Chaos Legion couldn't match, and then try to exploit it for all it was worth. Dean Thomas couldn't think of what that advantage might be, but if he did come up with any ideas for beating Chaos, he'd share them. Harry had ordered him to, after all. Sigh, Draco had thought, since he couldn't actually sigh out loud. But it was good advice, and Draco had followed it, sitting at his bedroom desk with quill and parchment listing out everything that might be a relative advantage. And, almost to Draco's own surprise, he'd had an idea. A real one. In fact, he'd had two. The hollow bell sounded through the forest, somehow sounding more ominous than ever before. On the instant, the two pilots cried, Up! and leapt onto their broomsticks, heading into the gray sky. Mr. and Mrs. Davis had now slumped slightly against each other, more from sheer muscle exhaustion than from any decrease in tension. Before them, the vast blank white parchment flickered with three great windows, as though holes had been cut through into the forest, showing three armies on the march. Lesser windows showed the six riders upon their broomsticks, and the corner of the parchment showed a view of the entire forest with glowing dots to indicate armies and scouts. The window into sunshine showed General Granger and her captains marching in the center of the Sunshine Regiment, protected by contigo screens along with a number of other young witches. The Sunshine Regiment, the defense professor had remarked, knew well that it had now acquired a strong advantage in experienced soldiers, and it meant to protect those soldiers from a surprise attack. Aside from that, the Sunshine soldiers were moving forward at a steady march, conserving their strength. The soldiers in General Malfoy's army, at least those with higher transfiguration scores, were picking up leaves and transfiguring them into... Well, if you looked at Padma Patil, who was almost done with hers, it looked like her leaf was becoming a left-handed glove bearing a dangling strap. The window had zoomed in to show this. Lord Jugson was watching the screens with a flat expression. His voice, when he spoke, seemed to ooze and drip with disdain. What is your son doing, Lucius? The foreign-born witch who stood at Draco Malfoy's right side had finished transfiguring her glove, and was now bringing it before the dragon general like a sacrifice. I do not know, said Lucius Malfoy, his tone calm, though no less aristocratic. But I must trust that he has a good reason for doing it. All Dragon Army stopped for a moment as Padma slid the glove over her left hand, strapped it in place, and presented it before Draco Malfoy, who also stopped in place, took several deep breaths, raised his wand, executed a precise set of eight movements, and bellowed, Caloportus! The Dragon Warrior raised her gloved hand, flexed it, and gave a small bow to Draco Malfoy, 
who returned it more shallowly, though the dragon general was staggering slightly. Padma then returned to her place at Draco's side, and the dragons began marching once more. Well, remarked Augusta Longbottom, I don't suppose someone would care to explain. Amelia Bones was frowning slightly as she gazed at the screen. For some reason or other, said the amused voice of Professor Quirrell, it seems that the Scion of Malfoy is able to cast surprisingly strong magic for a first-year student. Due to the purity of his blood, of course. Certainly, the good Lord Malfoy would not have openly flouted the underage magic laws by arranging for his son to receive a wand before his acceptance into Hogwarts. I suggest you be careful in your implications, Quirrell. Oh, I am. A coloportus cannot be dispelled by finite incantatum. It requires an alohomora of equal strength. Until then, a glove so charmed will resist lesser material forces, deflect the sleep hex and the stunning hex. As neither Mr. Potter nor Miss Granger can cast a counterspell powerful enough, that charm is invincible upon this battlefield. It is not the original intent of the charm, nor the intent of whoever taught Mr. Malfoy an emergency spell for evading his enemies. But it would seem that Mr. Malfoy has been learning creativity. Lucius Malfoy had straightened as the defense professor spoke. He now sat erect upon his cushioned bench, his head held perceptibly higher than before, and when he spoke it was with quiet pride. He will be the greatest Lord Malfoy that has yet lived. Faint praise, Augusta Longbottom said under her breath. Amelia Bones chuckled, as did Mr. Davis, for a tiny, fatal fraction of a second before he stopped with a strangled gargle. I quite agree, said Professor Quirrell, though it wasn't clear to whom he spoke. Unfortunately for Mr. Malfoy, he is new to the art of creativity, and so he has committed a classic error of Ravenclaw. And what might that be? Professor Quirrell had leaned back in his seat, the pale blue eyes briefly unfocusing as one of the windows shifted its viewpoint within the greater screen, zooming in to show the sweat now on Draco Malfoy's forehead. It is such a beautiful idea that Mr. Malfoy has quite overlooked its pragmatic difficulties. Would someone care to explain that? said Lady Greengrass. Not all of us present are expert at such affairs. Amelia Bone spoke, the old witch's voice somewhat dry. It will tempt them to try to catch hexes that they would be wiser to simply dodge, the more so if they have had little practice catching them, and the casting of so many charms will tire their strongest warrior. Professor Quirrell gave the DMLE director a half-nod of acknowledgement. As you say, Madam Bones, Mr. Malfoy is new to the business of having ideas. And so, when he has one, he becomes proud of himself for having it. He has not yet had enough ideas to unflinchingly discard those that are beautiful in some aspects and impractical in others. He has not yet acquired confidence in his own ability to think of better ideas as he requires them. What we are seeing here is not Mr. Malfoy's best idea, I fear, but rather his only idea. Lord Malfoy simply turned to watch the screens again, as though the defense professor had used up his right to exist. But, said Lord Greengrass, 
But what in Merlin's name is Harry Potter do? Sixteen remaining soldiers of the Chaos Legion, or fifteen plus Blaze Zabini, rather, marched confidently through the forest, their shoes thudding over the still dry ground. Their camouflage uniforms blended into the forest even more than usual, all colors washed out by the tints of an overcast day. Sixteen Chaos Legionnaires against twenty-eight Dragon Warriors and twenty-eight Sunshine Soldiers. The common consensus had been that, with odds that bad, it was practically impossible for them to lose. After all, General Chaos was bound to come up with something really spectacular facing odds like that. There was something almost nightmarish about how everyone seemed to now expect Harry to pull miracles out of his hat, on demand, any time one was needed. It meant that if you couldn't do the impossible, you were disappointing your friends and failing to live up to your potential. Harry hadn't bothered complaining to Professor Quirrell about too much pressure. Harry's mental model of the defense professor had predicted him looking severely annoyed, saying things along the lines of, You are perfectly capable of solving this problem, Mr. Potter. Did you even try? And then deducting several hundred Quirrell points. From above, from where two broomsticks watched their march, the young high voice of Tess Walsh cried, Friend! And after another moment, Ginger Snap! A handful of seconds later, the soldier who'd codenamed herself Ginger Snap returned bearing a double handful of acorns, sweating slightly in the cool but humid air from the jog that had taken her to the oak tree Neville had spotted. Gingersnap approached to where Shannon was holding a uniform shirt with the neck tied off in lieu of anyone having to transfigure a bag. When Gingersnap brought her hands forward to try and dump the acorns into the holding shirt, Chaotic Shannon, giggling, jerked the shirt to the right, then to the left again as Gingersnap made another effort to dump the acorns, until a sharp Miss Friedman from Lieutenant Knott caused Shannon to sigh and hold the shirt still. Gingersnap dumped her acorns into those accumulated and then headed out for more. Somewhere in the background, Ellie Knight was singing her own version of the Chaos Legion's marching song, and around half the other soldiers were trying to step along with it despite not knowing the tune in advance. Nearby, Nita Birdline, who had a high transfiguration score, finished creating yet another pair of green sunglasses and handed them to Adam Berenger, who folded up the sunglasses before tucking them into his uniform pocket. Other soldiers were already wearing their own green sunglasses despite the cloudy day. You might guess that there was some sort of incredibly complicated and fascinating explanation behind this, and you would be right. Two days earlier, Harry had been sitting amid his bookcases in the comfy rocking chair he'd obtained for his trunk's cavern level, pondering silently in the quiet span between classes and dinner time, thinking about power. For 16 Chaotics to defeat 28 Sunnies and 28 Dragons, they would need a force multiplier. There were limits to what you could do with maneuver. There had to be a secret weapon, and it had to be invincible or at least moderately unstoppable. Muggle artifacts were now illegal in Hogwarts mock battles, banned by Ministry Edict, and the trouble with finding some other clever and unusual spell was that an army twice your own size could brute force finite almost anything you tried. 
The Sunshine Regiment might have missed that tactic with the transfigured chainmail, but nobody would miss it again now that Professor Quirrell had spelled it out. And Finite Incantatum was a brute force counterspell which required at least as much magic as the spell being cancelled, which, if you were severely outnumbered, made it a whole new order of military challenge. The enemy could finite anything you tried, and still have enough magic left over for shields and volleys of sleep hexes. Unless, somehow, you could invoke potencies beyond the ordinary strength of first-year Hogwarts students. Something too powerful for the enemy to finite. So Harry had asked Neville if he'd ever heard of any small, safe sacrificial rituals. And then, after the screaming and the shouting had subsided, after Harry had stopped trying to argue about unbreakable vows and just given up the whole thing as clearly impossible from a public relations standpoint, Harry had realized that he hadn't even needed to go there. They taught you how to invoke potencies far beyond your own strength in ordinary Hogwarts classes. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. Defense. Charms. Transfiguration. Potions. History of magic. Astronomy. Broomstick flying. Herbology. So! Screamed the voice from above. It was a good thing that Neville Longbottom hadn't the tiniest idea that his grandmother was watching, or he would have been more self-conscious about screaming scary battle cries at the top of his lungs while casting Luminos every three seconds as he rocketed through a dense forest of trees, hot on the tail of Gregory Goyle. But, Augusta Longbottom said, her expression showing almost as much astonishment as worry. But Neville is afraid of heights. Not all fears last, said Amelia Bones. The old witch was favoring the great screen before them with a measuring gaze. Or perhaps he has found courage. It is much the same in the end. A glimmer of red. Neville dodged, very nearly into a tree, but he did dodge. And then Neville somehow also managed to dodge almost all the branches before they smacked him in the face. Now Mr. Goyle's broomstick was pulling further and further away, even though the two of them were riding exactly the same broomstick and Mr. Goyle weighed more. Somehow, Neville was still falling behind. So Neville slowed down, pulled back, angled up out of the forest, and began to accelerate back toward where the Chaos Legion still marched. Twenty seconds later, it hadn't been a long chase, just an exciting one. Neville was back among his fellow Chaotix, and dismounted his broom to walk on the ground for a little bit. Neville, said General Potter. Harry's voice was a little distant as he walked carefully and steadily through the forest, his wand still applied to the almost finished form of the object he was slowly transfiguring. Beside him, Blaise Zabini, working a smaller version of the same transfiguration, looked like a shambling and fairy as he stumbled forward. I told you, Neville, you don't have to... Yes, I do, said Neville. He looked down at where his fingers grasped the broomstick and saw that not just his hands, but his whole arms were shaking. But unless anyone else in chaos had been practicing dueling for an hour a day with Mr. Diggory and then practicing their aim in private for another hour afterward, Neville was probably the best shot from a broomstick even after taking into account that he wasn't a very good flyer. Good show, Neville. 
Theodore said from where he was walking ahead of them all, leading the Chaos Legion forward through the forest while wearing only his undershirt. Augusta Longbottom and Charles Knott exchanged brief, astonished glances, and then wrenched their gazes away from one another as though stung. Neville drew a few deep breaths, trying to steady his hands, trying to think. Harry might not be good for deep strategic thinking while he was in the middle of an extended transfiguration. Lieutenant Knott, do you have any idea why Dragon just did that? They lost a broom. The dragons had started the combat with a feint to provide a distraction for Mr. Goyle's approach through the forest. Neville hadn't realized there were two brooms attacking until almost too late. But the Chaos Legion had gotten the other pilot. That was why broomsticks usually didn't attack before armies met. It meant the whole army would concentrate fire on the broomstick. And the dragons didn't even get anyone, did they? Nope! Tracy Davis said proudly. She too was now marching by General Potter's side, her wand gripped low and watchful as her eyes scanned the surrounding forest. I threw up a prismatic spear like a split second before Mr. Goyle's hex got Zambini, and the way Mr. Goyle had his other arm stretched out, I think he planned to knock down the general, too. The Slytherin witch smiled with vicious confidence. Mr. Goyle tried breaking drill hex, but learned to his dismay that its weak magic was no match for my newfound dark powers. Mwahahaha! Some Chaotix laughed with her, but a queasy sensation was starting in Neville's stomach as he realized how close the Chaos Legion had come to complete disaster. If Mr. Goyle had managed to disrupt both transfigurations... Report! Snapped the Dragon General, doing his best to conceal the fatigue he felt after casting 17 locking charms with more yet to come. Beads of sweat now dotted Gregory's forehead. The enemy got Dylan Vaughn, Gregory said formally. Harry Potter and Blaze Zabini were each transfiguring something dark gray and roundish. I don't think it was finished, but it looked like it would be big and hollow, sort of cauldron-shaped. Zabini's was smaller than Potter's. I couldn't get either of them or disrupt their transfigurations. Tracy Davis blocked me. Neville Longbottom is on a broomstick, and he's still a terrible flyer, but his aim is really good. Draco listened, frowning, and then he glanced at Padma and Dean Thomas, who both shook their own heads, indicating that they also couldn't think of what might be big and gray and shaped like a cauldron. Anything else? said Draco. If that was it, they'd lost a broom for nothing. The only other weird thing I saw was that some chaotics were wearing sort of like goggles? Draco thought about this, not noticing that he'd stopped marching or that all of Dragon Army had automatically stopped with him. Was there anything special about the goggles? Um, they were greenish, maybe? Okay. Again, without thinking, he began walking once more and his dragons followed. Here's our new strategy. We're only going to send 11 dragons against the Chaos Legion, not 14. That should be enough to beat them now that we can neutralize their special advantage. It was a gamble, but you had to take gambles sometimes if you wanted to come in first in a three-way battle. You figured out Chaos's plan, General Malfoy? Said Mr. Thomas with considerable surprise. What are they doing? Said Padma. I haven't the faintest idea, said Draco with a smirk of the most refined smugness. We'll just do the obvious thing. 
End first part of chapter 78. Thank you to the following people. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Casey Davis was voiced by Luffy. Lauren Housley as Susan Bones. Padme and Paravati Patil by Amanda Grisello. Lady Greengrass by Paula. Quibbler Headlines by Phil Fulu. Neville by Adam Hartel. Amelia Bones by Melissa Kessler. Augusta Longbottom by Sabrina Seaver. Ernie McMillan, Eric Starling. Lucius Malfoy, voiced by Martek Tex. Gregory Goyle, Anthony Westbrook. Dean Thomas, David Liu. Anthony Goldstein, read by Seth Morrigan. Tess Walsh, Seslo Cedar. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the next part of Chapter 78, Taboo Tradeoff's Prelude, Cheating. Cheating.